welcome back to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your ghost host with the most, Aulani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. This week's story actually came to my attention from one of my best friends named Andrew. Shout out to you. He sent me a couple of the famous pictures from this case and it was so intriguing to me that I wanted to share it with all of you. So this week I'll be telling you the story of Septic Tank Sam. Septic Tank Sam does have a real name, but part of what kept bringing this case back to people's attention is that very catchy and also very descriptive name. This case doesn't follow our usual lineup of murder, but it gave me a way to also talk about disparities between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. As someone of color myself, I always try to take advantage of opportunities to share information on the struggles that people of color have faced pretty much since the beginning of time. If you want to hear another Aboriginal story, you can also check out the episode on the Stories from the Mortuary YouTube channel titled A Concrete Floor, A Cell Door, and John Pat. If any of the listeners from Canada or Australia have their own Aboriginal cases or stories you want to share, you can always send me an email at storiesfromthemortuary at gmail.com. Now, y'all know I always share a case about a missing Indigenous woman, but today I wanted to specifically share information about a missing Aboriginal woman from British Columbia, since that's where our story today takes place. Abigail Andrews hasn't been seen or heard from since April 7th, 2010. At 6 p.m. that evening, she was last seen leaving her basement apartment on 99th Avenue in Fort St. John, British Columbia. While leaving the residence, she told her neighbor, who also happened to be her landlord's father-in-law, that she was going to go visit a male friend who lived on 98th Avenue. At 7 p.m., she called her mother, Debbie Andrews, to relay the same information. Before hanging up, Debbie asked her daughter to text her or give her a call when she arrived home, which Abigail agreed to do. According to reports, she was last seen walking down 94th Avenue toward 98th Avenue. Abigail never again got in contact with her mother that night. After two days without any calls or texts, which is said to be out of character for the 28-year-old, her parents filed a missing persons report. The date was April 9th, 2010. When the search for Abigail began, it was conducted by the Fort St. John RCMP and its general duty section. When they interviewed the family, it was learned that Abigail was three months pregnant, which was cause for alarm, as both she and her unborn child were potentially at risk if not located. According to her family, she was excited to be a first-time mother and had been stockpiling supplies, including diapers and food. Two days before her disappearance, she had gone shopping with her parents to purchase more items in preparation for the birth. When it was first announced that Abigail was missing, both local and national media broadcast the story. However, as time went on, little evidence was uncovered and coverage of the case began to wane. A few days after Abigail was reported missing, the RCMP, aided by North Peace Search and Rescue, the BC Coroner Service, and a forensic anthropologist searched the North Peace landfill located just outside Fort St. John. On April 20th, 2010, it was announced that the search had been completed. However, investigators wouldn't share what led to the search or if anything of value was discovered. Police checked her bank account to see if there had been any activity on her bank card after she disappeared. It was found that the card hadn't been used since around the time she went missing, and there was no unusual purchases on it to indicate anything suspicious. To help raise awareness, Abigail's friends and family set up a Facebook group, where they would share updates and post pleas for information. On May 5, 2010, a vigil was held for Abigail at the Frontier Bar and Grill, where she had worked as a waitress. Participants met at a Centennial Park in Fort St. John before walking down 100th Street, carrying candles meant to symbolize them lighting her way home. 
After reaching the Frontier Bar and Grill, a missing persons prayer was said, a photo slideshow was presented, and there was a musical performance of the song, Women's Warrior. Abigail's parents weren't present at the vigil, as it was too difficult for them. At the beginning of the investigation, there were many rumors circulating around Fort St. John in regards to what could have possibly happened to Abigail. One specific rumor speculated that Abigail liked to party and was part of the wrong crowd, which her cousin, Delilah Andrews, disputes. There were also rumors regarding cryptic texts sent to the family shortly after her disappearance, something they aren't allowed to comment on due to the ongoing nature of the investigation. These rumors have upset the family, as they feel the public isn't taking the disappearance as seriously as they would like. In June 2010, a group of Abigail's friends and family organized a search for her. They hadn't previously been allowed to do so, as the RCMP worried any unauthorized searches could interfere with the investigation. On the advice of a psychic, they searched around her apartment as well as an area outside of Fort St. John, but were unable to uncover anything. That same month, two billboards were erected along the Alaska Highway in Hope, British Columbia, in the hope someone driving along the highway could have seen something related to the case. They were arranged by Abigail's aunt, Beth Cobit, and featured two large photos of Abigail, her physical description, and phone numbers the public could call if they had any information or tips. They stayed up for one year, and the $4,700 needed was raised through donations by the family and local businesses. Some sources say she was single at the time she went missing. However, locals share she was in fact dating someone. The man, who has never been publicly identified, is said to have been from out of town. In 2011, Abigail's friends ran a letter campaign in the hopes of getting her case featured on the CBC investigative show, The Fifth Estate. In 2013, the RCMP uploaded a reenactment video to their YouTube channel in the hopes of stirring up memories and bringing in new leads. At the same time, they also shared that they had one suspect who they didn't publicly name. They believed this person to have spoken about what they did to others and asked anyone with information to come forward. Even though they have a suspect, they're still missing key information to conclude the investigation. In order to bring more awareness to Canada's missing and murdered Indigenous women, Toronto-based illustrator Evan Monday tweeted illustrations of some of the missing to then-Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Abigail was one of the women featured. The project was done in tribute to them and was used as an attempt to elevate political interest in the cases. As of late, there have been no recent updates about the investigation. The case is currently being investigated by the RCMP Provincial Serious Crime Unit, and its investigators are currently treating Abigail's disappearance as a possible homicide. While very little has been shared with the public regarding the investigation, the RCMP has said foul play hasn't been ruled out, and there have been numerous searches conducted based on tips from the public. Abigail was one of the missing persons honored during the Sisters in Spirit Vigil, which is a march to honor missing and murdered Aboriginal people. Her family was also in attendance. Abigail Abby Andrews went missing from Fort St. John, British Columbia, on April 7, 2010. She was 28 years old and is believed to have been wearing black pants, a white shirt, a dark blue or black vest, a black mid-length belted trench coat, and a pair of black sequined flats. She's also said to have been carrying a purple guess purse and her pink Blackberry Pearl cell phone. She is of Métis descent, and at the time of her disappearance, she was six foot and weighed approximately 200 pounds. She has shoulder-length dark brown hair and hazel eyes. 
When she went missing, she was approximately three months pregnant, although she wasn't yet showing. She has breast implants, which have serial numbers, and she has a tribal art tattoo on her lower back. According to her family, her teeth are in good condition, and she's known to use a dental palate retainer. As well, her right index finger appears crooked due to a previously healed break. Currently, the case is classified as a missing person and is being investigated as a possible homicide. If alive, she would be in her mid to late 30s. If you have any information, you can contact the RCMP E-Division Serious Crime Unit at 778-290-3900. Tips can also be called into the Fort St. John RCMP at either 250-787-8100 or 250-787-8140 or anonymously via Crime Stoppers at one 800 222 8477. A link to this article with all of my sources for this episode can be found in the show notes. After the break, we'll begin this week's story from the mortuary. Are you equal parts cute and spooky? Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year-round? Visit wearecrimsonclover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that'll suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt, and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code Miss underscore Memento underscore Mori with two eyes. That is M-S underscore M-E-M-E-N-T-O underscore M-O-R-I-I for 10% off of your total purchase at checkout. On April 13th of 1977, a man named Charlie McLeod and his wife Mavis were walking through their dilapidated farm they owned near Tollfield. Tollfield's located in central Alberta in Canada. Charlie and Mavis were searching for the pump for the septic tank that resided on their property. When they approached the tank, Charlie spotted a brown shoe sticking up from inside the tank. Under the surface of the pungent septic fluid, a human leg could be seen floating with the rest of the body a faint shadow below. The McLeods drove to the Tollfield Royal Canadian Mounted Police Detachment, where Sergeant Ed Lamerts and another officer accompanied them back to the farm. According to multiple accounts of the case, the police used old ice cream pails to scoop the liquid from the tank and begin recovering the body. Wrapped in a bedsheet and tied together by rope was the decomposing body of a man. He was still fully clothed in a blue shirt, gray t-shirt, blue jeans, and shoes. With it being evident that the body had been deliberately dumped there, a murder investigation followed, during which the unidentified male became known as Septic Tank Sam. Investigators determined that the man, nicknamed Septic Tank Sam due to the circumstances of his discovery, had been brutally tortured before his murder. A lengthy investigation was launched to pursue all leads that might help shed light on the man's identity. The victim was partially decomposed, but an autopsy would still be able to shed light on his death. The victim's official cause of death was from two gunshot wounds to his head and chest, but his death hadn't been quick. He had been burned with a butane torch and cigarettes, tied up, beaten, and sexually mutilated, likely with farm shears. The mutilation was so severe that it took the medical examiner months to confirm that the victim was in fact male. According to the medical examiner, this torture likely happened before he was shot, and not after. 
The first medical examiner estimated that the man was a 28-year-old Caucasian man standing around 5'5 or 5'7 with a medium build and dark hair. The medical examiner also found evidence that Sam Doe had suffered an illness as a child, likely around five years of age. This had caused his bones to not develop in the same way as a healthy individual. The killer or killers had used quicklime to try and speed up the decomposition process of Sam Doe, but unknown to them, quicklime actually helps dry out and preserve remains when mixed with water, so the victim's body was found in a good enough condition for the evidence of torture to still be visible, despite being in the tank for several months at the least. However, because decomp had still taken place, police couldn't release photos of the deceased or take his fingerprints. This would make identifying him extremely difficult, and it would take a couple years before they got their first break. In 1979, a forensic pathologist named Dr. Clyde Snow from Oklahoma was asked to reconstruct the skull of Sam to help in identifying him, which led to Sam's body being exhumed from the grave he had been buried in. Dr. Snow took 50 measurements of the skull and another 75 measurements of his bones and fed this information into a computer program. Two conclusions came from Dr. Snow's findings. First, Sam was aboriginal. Second, Sam was about 35 years old. However, they didn't want to rule out any possibilities, so Sam was officially listed as most likely native, but possibly Caucasian, between the ages of 26 to 40. By 1983, after releasing facial recognition pictures of septic tank Sam in newspaper articles throughout Alberta, the murder was still unsolved, which prompted the RCMP to release details that they had kept private for the sake of solving the case. They revealed that Sam had been rolled up in a yellow bedsheet and the sheet was tied with nylon rope around his head and body. Detectives had thought that Sam was subsequently tied down to a bed while being tortured and lying on top of the yellow sheet that was used to eventually dispose of his body. Sam had burn marks on the sleeves of his shirt, the legs of his jeans, and one sock where the murderer or murderers had burned the sole of his foot. They also noted that the crotch area of his jeans looked as if it had been cut out with shears before sexually mutilating him. Sam's dental records were sent out to over 800 dental practices across Canada, but this didn't lead to any answers either. It seemed as though no one had known the man and he had fallen through the cracks. No dentist could provide an identity that matched dental records. Two reconstructions were made of Sam Doe. The first and most well-known was made by Betty Pat Gatliff in 1979 using her and Snow's measurements. The second was made by Cyril Shan and depicted the man in a baseball cap. Most of these reconstructions were widely circulated in newspapers, but they didn't turn up any credible leads. Persistent collaborative efforts by the Alberta RCMP Missing Persons Unit, the Historical Homicide Unit, and the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, the OCME, to identify the victim in the circumstances of his death have spanned over 40 years. During this time, various RCMP investigators interviewed potential witnesses and tracked down leads, tenaciously employing novel technologies and methods as they emerged. OCME medical examiners worked with forensic anthropologists to develop biological profiles and with forensic dentists to compare dental records to reported missing persons. Forensic facial reconstructions were utilized as well to try and generate leads from those that might recognize the victim. In October 2017, the Alberta RCMP Missing Persons Unit announced the launch of a national DNA program focusing on the identification of unidentified remains. 
The program allows investigators to obtain DNA from people who have a missing family member for potential match against unidentified human remains on the DNA index. It was hoped that this new program would provide some answers in this case. In 2019, the RCMP sent a partial DNA profile from the victim's remains that had been developed in 2012 to be compared to this new DNA database, but without success. With all leads exhausted, in 2020, the Alberta RCMP Missing Persons Unit and the OCME teamed up with Othram to attempt to generate investigative leads with advanced DNA testing. Othram is an American corporation specializing in forensic genealogy to resolve unsolved murders, disappearances, and identification of unidentified decedents or murder victims. This company applied forensic-grade genome sequencing to develop a comprehensive genealogical profile for the victim. Although the DNA was degraded and previously yielded a partial profile, the Othram team was able to develop a complete profile that was suitable for genealogical research. The Othram genealogy team developed investigative leads that the RCMP investigators used to identify the potential immediate family members of the victim. The investigation continued with the Alberta RCMP Missing Person Unit obtaining familial DNA samples that were then sent for confirmatory DNA testing. The secondary testing confirmed the familial relationships, and the investigators were now able to identify the homicide victim as Gordon Edwin Sanderson of Edmonton. Gordon would have been approximately 25 years old at the time of his death. Once his DNA confirmed his identity, the harsh reality of Gordon's life soon unraveled. Known as Gordy by his family and friends, Gordon was born in Manitoba on October 22, 1950. At nine years old, he was separated from his family during the 60s scoop and put into foster care. According to an article written by Aaron Hansen for Indigenous Foundations, the term 60s scoop was coined by Patrick Johnston, author of the 1983 report Native Children and the Child Welfare System. It refers to the mass removal of Aboriginal children from their families into the child welfare system, in most cases without the consent of their families or bands. It was common practice in British Columbia in the mid-60s to scoop almost all newly born children from their mothers on reservations. The 60s scoop refers to a particular phase of a larger history, and not to an explicit government policy. Although the practice of removing Aboriginal children from their families and into state care existed before the 1960s, with the residential school system, for example, the drastic overrepresentation of Aboriginal children in the child welfare system accelerated in the 1960s, when Aboriginal children were seized and taken from their homes and placed, in most cases, into middle class Euro Canadian families. This overrepresentation continues today. The government began phasing out compulsory residential school education in the 50s and 60s, as the public began to understand its devastating impacts on families. It was the general belief of government authorities at the time that Aboriginal children could receive a better education if they transitioned into the public school system. Residential schools, however, persisted as a sort of boarding school for children whose families were deemed unsuitable to care for them. This transition to provincial services led to a 1951 amendment that enabled the province to provide services to Aboriginal people where none existed federally. Child protection was one of these areas. In 1951, 29 Aboriginal children were in provincial care in British Columbia. By 1964, that number was 1,466. 
Aboriginal children, who had comprised only 1% of all children in care, came to make up just over 34%. In the 1960s, the child welfare system didn't require, nor did it expect, social workers to have specific training in dealing with children in Aboriginal communities. Many of these social workers were completely unfamiliar with the culture or history of the Aboriginal communities they entered. What they believed constituted proper care was generally based on middle-class Euro-Canadian values. For example, when social workers entered the homes of families subsisting on a traditional Aboriginal diet of dried game, fish, and berries, and didn't see fridges or cupboards stocked in typical Euro-Canadian fashion, they assumed that the adults in the home weren't providing for their children. Additionally, upon seeing the social problems reserve communities faced, such as poverty, unemployment, and addiction, some social workers felt a duty to protect the local children. In many cases, Aboriginal parents who were living in poverty but otherwise providing caring homes had their children taken away from them with little or no warning and absolutely no consent. In fact, it wasn't until 1980 that the Child, Family, and Community Services Act required social workers to notify the band council if an Aboriginal child was removed from the community. An alarmingly disproportionate number of Aboriginal children were apprehended from the 1960s onward. By the 1970s, roughly one-third of all children in care were Aboriginal. Approximately 70% of the children apprehended were placed into non-Aboriginal homes, many of those homes in which their heritage was denied. In some cases, the foster or adoptive parents told their children that they were French or Italian instead. Government policy at the time didn't allow birth records to be open unless both the child and parent consented. This meant that many children suspected their heritage but were unable to have confirmed it. Many children floated from foster home to foster home or lived in institutionalized care. Physical and sexual abuse wasn't uncommon. It was usually covered up, rendered invisible by the lack of social services and support for Aboriginal families and the affected children, a result of the general social reluctance to publicly acknowledge such abuse at the time. The Aboriginal Committee of the Family and Children's Services Legislation Review Panel's report, Liberating Our Children, describes the negative consequences for Aboriginal children. Quote, the homes in which our children are placed range from those of caring, well-intentioned individuals to places of slave labor and physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. The violent effects of the most negative of these homes are tragic for its victims. Even the best of these homes are not healthy places for our children. Anglo-Canadian foster parents aren't culturally equipped to create an environment in which a positive Aboriginal self-image can develop. In many cases, our children are taught to demean those things about themselves that are aboriginal. Meanwhile, they are expected to emulate normal child development by imitating the role model behavior of their Anglo-Canadian foster or adoptive parents. The impossibility of emulating the genetic characteristics of their Caucasian caretakers results in an identity crisis unresolvable in this environment. In many cases, this leads to behavioral problems causing the alternative foster or adoption relationship to break down. The Aboriginal child simply can't live up to the assimilationist expectations of the non-Aboriginal caretaker. Children growing up in conditions of suppressed identity and abuse tend to eventually experience psychological and emotional problems. For many apprehended children, the roots of these problems didn't emerge until later in life when they learned about their birth family or their heritage. Social work professor Raven Sinclair describes these experiences as creating, quote, tremendous obstacles to the development of a strong and healthy sense of identity for the transracial adoptee. 
Feelings of not belonging in either mainstream Euro-Canadian society or an Aboriginal society can also create barriers to reaching socioeconomic equity. Several factors came together to instigate a change in the state of Aboriginal child welfare in Canada. The influential National Indian Brotherhood's 1972 report, Indian Control Over Indian Education, inspired Aboriginal leaders to take control of their social services as well. Some Aboriginal leaders, including Sequapemk leader Wayne Christian, helped draw attention to the disproportionately high number of Aboriginal children apprehended by child welfare services and the need to act. In 1983, the Canadian Council on Social Development commissioned Patrick Johnson to undertake what became the first comprehensive statistical review of Aboriginal child welfare. The results showed that Aboriginal children were consistently overrepresented in child welfare services. In 1985, Justice Edwin Kimmelman released a highly critical review of Aboriginal child apprehension entitled No Quiet Place, Review Committee on Indian and Metis Adoptions and Placements. In this report, popularly known as the Kimmelman Report, Kimmelman and his committee, after holding hearings and listening to oral testimony, made 109 recommendations for policy change. Kimmelman concluded that, quote, cultural genocide has taken place in a systematic, routine manner. He was particularly appalled at the tendency to have Aboriginal children from Canada adopted out to American families, calling it a policy of, quote, wholesale exportation. Kimmelman finished his report by expressing his thoughts on his findings. Quote, An abysmal lack of sensitivity to children and families was revealed. Families approached agencies for help and found that what was described as being in the child's, quote, best interest resulted in their families being torn asunder and siblings separated. Social workers grappled with cultural patterns far different than their own with no preparation and no opportunity to gain understanding child apprehension became viewed as a successor to the residential school system and as a new form of cultural genocide. Under Article 2E of the United Nations Convention on Genocide from 1948, quote, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group constitutes genocide when the intent is to destroy a culture. During the 1980s, the accumulation of the Kimmelman Report, the Johnson Report, and resolutions by First Nations bans led provinces to amend their adoption laws to prioritize prospective adoption placements as follows. First, within the extended family of the child. Second, by another Aboriginal family. Third, by a non-Aboriginal family. In 1990, Indian and Northern Affairs Canada, the INAC, created the First Nations Child and Family Services Program, the FNCFS, which transferred administration of child and family services from the province or territory to the local band. Under the program, bands administer these services according to provincial or territorial legislation and child welfare standards, and the INAC helps fund the band's child and family welfare agencies. Bands have increasingly taken control over their own child protection services. These services have also undergone some reform, such as expanding resources for single parents and establishing juvenile probation services. A METIS Child Family Services program based in Edmonton is another example of an organization which incorporates traditional values into its adoptive family assessments. In many provinces and territories across Canada, a child is now entitled to know its background, and cultural appropriateness is considered in the assessment and screening of potential caregivers. Sinclair wrote, quote, 
Sadly, the involvement of the child welfare system is no less prolific in the current era. The 60s scoop has merely evolved into the millennium scoop. As aforementioned, the 60s scoop refers to a particular time in history, roughly 1961 to the 1980s. During the 1980s, the government changed child welfare laws so that bans could run their own social services. But problems similar to those seen during the 60s scoop persist today. In June 2000, INAC and the Assembly of First Nations, the AFN, conducted a policy review of INAC's FNCFS initiative and came up with 17 recommendations for improvements. A May 2008 report from the Auditor General of Canada found that Aboriginal children are still vastly overrepresented in care, citing that 51% of all children in care in British Columbia are Aboriginal, even though Aboriginal people comprise 8% of British Columbia's population. The report further states that an Aboriginal child in British Columbia is, quote, six times more likely to be taken into care than a non-Aboriginal child. In 2007, the AFN filed a complaint with the Canada Human Rights Commission claiming that the INAC's funding provisions created inequality between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal communities. In May 2008, Canada's Auditor General confirmed that, quote, current funding practices do not lead to equitable funding among Aboriginal and First Nations communities. In 1989, Canada helped draft the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, an international instrument that set out the minimum standards of human rights for children everywhere. Although Canada helped draft the convention, in 2007, UNICEF reported that, quote, Canada has been slow to honor its commitment to uphold these rights and ensure the well-being of children. The report addressed the situation of Aboriginal children in particular. Quote, improvements are urgently needed to ensure that Aboriginal children have adequate housing, safe food and water, protection from environmental contaminants, and access to health care. Policy continues to be reviewed and revised, but the complexities of Aboriginal child welfare aren't to be underestimated. Gordon Sanderson was only nine years old when he was forced into a new home for no reason other than his ethnicity. Gordon struggled with addictions and had multiple run-ins with police during his life. He lived in Edmonton in the 1970s and was going to Calgary to visit his younger brother, Arthur, but he never made it. His sister, Joyce, who had lost touch with both her brothers, reported Gordon missing in the early 1980s. Staff Sergeant Jason Zizulik with Alberta RCMP's Serious and Historical Crimes Unit said the family has a lot of emotions to process. Quote, I think it was a combination of a sense of mourning, but also relief. Definitely some feelings of anger towards what Gordy went through in his life and what was done to him. Dr. Bernard Bannock, Assistant Deputy Medical Examiner with the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, said some cases go unsolved for years, but he's glad some answers have been found. Quote, the main drive for the medical examiner's office is to give a voice to the dead and to assist the living next of kin in understanding the final moments of their loved one's death. It's satisfying for us in that regard and also hopefully provides some closure. Not every family whose loved one was a victim of homicide gets closure. In fact, not getting closure often perpetuates grief. The words grief, mourning, and bereavement are often used interchangeably, but they don't mean the same thing, and it's important to know what they actually mean. Grief is an emotion or set of emotions due to loss. Mourning is the outward expression of grief. Bereavement is the act or separation of loss that results in the experience of grief. Just because Gordon's sister wasn't close to him, it doesn't mean that she didn't feel grief for the loss. 
The Alberta RCMP Missing Person Unit is now seeking anyone who knew Gordon Sanderson and might have information about his final days before his murder. If you're able to provide any information on this case, please contact the Tollfield RCMP at 780-662-3353. Though he was originally buried in a pauper's grave in Edmonton, Gordon Edwin Sanderson has finally been laid to rest in the Edmonton Municipal Cemetery. There are still many unanswered questions in the case of Gordon Sanderson, and it's highly likely that justice will never truly be served. But at the end of the day, Gordy got his name back, which is more than some people ever receive. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to stay tuned for next week's story from the mortuary.